Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Man, it is. Thank you so very much. It is. I love you guys so much. We're family, right? And uh, it's surreal that I'm up here. I haven't preached in six months. And uh, that's the first time in like 20 years that I've had something like that happen. And so I just, man, I just want to thank you for all your prayers. And uh, I got to say, we, we have the best church in the United States of America. Come on. I love you guys. You just really embarrassed me. Uh, but my wife and I, we're, we're blessed to have uh, you in our lives. And uh, going through this pandemic, one thing we've really learned is that family and community really matters. Right? Come on, somebody. We, we need each other, right? And... Um, and uh, you guys have, have been there for us. I want to, I, I just got to give a shout out to like all of you. Uh, but I want to thank all of you for, for praying for us. Uh, I'm not going to tell my story today, but maybe uh, over the next uh, few weeks when I get another chance to preach, I'll probably share some of the physical things that I've gone through and how the Holy Spirit has really done a deep work in me. And I think it's important uh, that I share that uh, with all of us. How many of you know the truth sets us free? Um, but today I have something a little bit different. Um, come on, come on, baby girl. That's my little daughter, amen, and me already. Um, do we have any foodies out there? Any foodies you love, right? Uh, any moms who are foodies? Okay, several of you. Have you ever been so tired? You're like, I don't even want to make for the kids. And they're like, they're crying, they're starving. And so you go into the pantry and you just find whatever you can find. And you throw it into, into a, a pot, you cook it, and you call it soup. That's my message today. <laughs> it's soup. I don't know what you're going to get, right? I got, guys, I haven't preached in six months, so I have, I'm a deductive thinker, and so I deductive, I take a thesis and deduct from there, and I have all these notes, but today's going to be a little bit of a kind of a soup extemporaneous. I'm not sure what it's going to be, but I do want to share my, my heart with you. Before I do that, if you don't know me, my name is Chris. <laughs> uh, there's so many new faces. I love it. So many new faces. The church has been doing so well uh, since my wife and I stepped down. I guess you guys don't need us anymore. Uh, no, but no, it's the, the church is so healthy. And uh, my name is Chris again. And my wife down here is Kelly. We are the lead pastors of uh, this great church. If you don't know, we have seven. Everyone say seven. We have seven kids, three sets of twins. And frankly, that's way too many children. In fact, we've been to restaurants. I'm convinced we've had managers quit as they saw us walk into. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've wanted to quit. Going, We can't go anywhere with seven kids, guys. So if you're a babysitter... And you want to help 
just talk to my wife. We would love that. Uh, I want to thank all of, this is like the Oscars. I want to thank you. 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 Uh, but I want to thank um, our teaching team, which is a world-class teaching team. Done an exceptional job for six months. I don't know how they've done it. I want to start, Dr. Stan was here at first service. Uh, what I love about Dr. Stan is that he's brilliant. Uh, but what's amazing is that he's a scholar, but he also hears from Jesus. And so um, he's, he's given several words that have been so timely specifically for me. And I want to thank publicly Dr. Stan for his messages. I want to thank Pastor Ken Wild, our founding pastor. He's a statesman. He doesn't have to say anything. He's 6'5", good-looking. He has the energy of a 38-year-old, and I'm just so impressed. Hopefully, I have your genes. I mean, I don't have your 6'5 genes. My sisters took that from, away from me. Anyways, <laughs> some of you are like, what is he talking about? I don't know what I'm talking about. It's soup day. It's soup day. Um, but I want to thank you, Dad, for um, leading so well, being a statesman, giving us a vision our city in the future. You're amazing. Pastor Mark Thornton, he was down here, but he left. We love Pastor Mark. He's the Prince of Preachers. I wish I had his preaching style. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't inhale any breath as he preaches. It's amazing. He just goes. He has the gift of communication, and uh, he's done such a wonderful job, not only in our church, but um, in the community, uh, more broadly, even or more particularly uh, down in Boise State. So, Pastor Mark, wherever you are, we love you, and we're so blessed to have you. Shane Grove. How many love Shane Grove? Love his hair. He has the best hair. He's also brilliant, but I love his stories. And I just, you have no idea his heart for the kingdom of God. And he's been my best friend since we met when you were six and I was seven. And uh, that's, that's what church can do for you. You can, ha you can build lifelong friends. And I see Joel in the back. And can I get an amen from you, Joel? I just love, there's something about sticking it out in a church and having lifelong friends. Friends, and I think I don't know why. I think some somebody here today needs to hear that. Uh, but Shane is has a brilliant mind, and I want to thank you for sharing uh, over the last six months and uh, calling you late Saturday night and saying I'm so sorry, but you got to preach tomorrow, and you're doing it full of faith. So can you give it up for Shane? I want to thank my lovely uh, sister Tracy, Amanda. Wild pace. I always get that. She is what I. She's a unicorn, right? She's brilliant. She's a, a scholar, but she also has charisma. Go figure, right? And uh, I want to thank you, Tracy, for teaching and leading us. And I just, I, we just got the best uh, teaching team in the world. And so, Tracy, thank you for pouring your heart into us. We have been so blessed by your messages. You're amazing. You're a world changer. She's a, she's a transformative agent. And uh, I just want, I, we're just blessed to have you be part of the team. Uh, also, Michael Borner. I don't know if Michael Borner's here. Uh, he, he should do a TED Talk. How many of you think he should do a TED Talk? My God, the last message, he had all these props. And I'm, I'm, I'm just like, I'm, I'm like a loser preacher. I'm like, 
But yeah, he's a TED Talker par excellence, and uh, we're so blessed to have him take difficult concepts and break them down. We call that kinesthetic learning, right? You are just, you are the master. And uh, so I want to thank you, Michael. I don't, there you are. I, there you are. Uh, we're really honored to have you not only as a part of our teaching team, but as an elder in this church. And your wisdom over the last 20 years has been amazing. And uh, you have no idea uh, how Michael has influenced my life personally. So thank you, Michael, for everything you've done. Church, can you give it up for uh, Michael? So it's time to uh, get into the message. If you could turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. If you have a title, if you like titles, I'm not really a title guy. I'm going to call it Death, Easter, and the Bears. Death, Easter, and the Bears. Not the Chicago Bears because that we're not that kind of church, right? We don't worship demons, huh? Okay. Huh? What? What? <laughs> Oh, man. No, it's, you'll, you'll find out what that actually um, means. But before I, before I read this passage of Scripture, I think out of the English um, standard version, the ESV, uh, I want you, I, I don't want you to spray it. I want you to say it. I want you to turn to your neighbor. You guys know the drill. And just say, man, I'm so glad you made it here this morning. All right, turn to your other neighbor, and this is the kind of church we are. Say, go Cowboys, Dallas Cowboys. Go Cowboys. Come on, say it. All right. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, says, Now on the first day of the week. Could you say first day of the week? Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early probably not her last name, is probably the fishing village that she was from. Uh, so she most likely grew up around the Sea of, of Galilee. But Mary Magdala or Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Verse four, both of them were running. Do we have any runners here? Together, right? But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. How many of you, I just love competitive people. Come on, right? This is a preacher joke. We always have to, if we're reading this passage, we always got to mention that John made it very clear that he was faster than Peter. It's kind of like working out. Like I work out with a group. I always got to make sure that I, you know, Willow knows this that whatever exercise or routine that I'm in, I have to win. And can I get an amen? No? Okay. Verse 5. <laughs> and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. This time Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. A neat place, I think it reads in, in, in the Greek. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand. Everyone say, did not understand. The scripture. That he must rise from the dead. Verse 10. Do we have verse 10? I don't know if we have verse 10. I'll read verse 10 here. 
then, and we have this great anticlimax, right? This is the first day of the week. John is telling us, and I'll get to this here pretty quick. Uh, this is the eighth day. Uh, or, or in other words, this is the first day of God's brand new world. And the disciples, verse 10 says, they went back to their homes to eat some cheese puffs and to sit in their sofas and watch Gonzaga lose to Baylor. And I'm still not over that, okay? This, I, I never caught this passage before until recently. They did not understand, so they went back to their homes. If there's a thesis, this is this, I want you to like think about this. They did not understand, and so the disciples went back to their homes. I, I think many Christians, and I'm gonna get into my message here, I'm gonna pray here, but I, I'm gonna say this first. I say this all the time. Many Christians, I think, in the Western world are confused about Easter and the hope of Easter. They don't understand what resurrection means, right? It's kind of like salami. How many of you like salami? I used to eat salami every single day. Now with just some physical stuff I've gone, gone through, my wife has turned me into a hippie. So I'm kind of a quasi-vegan I smell like vitamins. She put oils on me, and I drive a Subaru now. I'm kidding. <laughs> if you drive a Subaru, that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with you, all right? <laughs> nothing wrong. Um, but I used to eat salami all the, all, all the time. And some of you have heard this joke, but just pretend like you've never heard this joke before. Um, but uh, have you ever wondered what those white specks are? in the salami, right? I, I used to tell myself, and I like to think, they're vitamins, right? Like vitamin V or D or whatever. Uh, I think a lot of people treat, and I'm, I'm convinced of this as I talk to a lot of people, and it's implicit in our conversation when, it, when it's related to Easter. Uh, we're not quite sure what Jesus coming back from the dead really means for us. And uh, the French call it je ne sais quoi, right? McDonald's like made it a cliche, but je ne sais quoi simply means what is it? And a lot of Christians are like that. What is Easter? How does it relate to me? And that's what I want to talk to you today. But it's going to be a soup day, okay? All right, we're going to get there, right? So don't sweat if I'm not there in 10 minutes, but we're going to get there. We're going to flesh that out. Are you ready? All right, by your heads, close your eyes. Father, we thank you for your presence today. Lord, I thank you for your strength. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful, blessed church. Lord, I thank you for um, all the new faces, all the new families. Lord, we bless them in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you. Jesus, you are in this place. Jesus, I thank you that you would instill in your every son and daughter in this room a fresh sense of of purpose. And anyone here, maybe even for the first time, or maybe coming and kind of checking stuff out, and maybe they're not convinced about God or whatever, Holy Spirit, I thank you that you would show yourself to them in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for your presence. And we welcome you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, I mean, can you just turn to your neighbor and say, man, it's going to be good? All right, how many, I, I'm bringing out all the old stories, all right? So how, how many of you uh, love camping? Okay, I, I don't understand you. I'm gonna tell you a story I've told many times before, but camping, I am convinced, are for those who love to suffer. 
and all the people said amen who don't like camping. Like my idea of camping, what is it? You ask, like some of you are like, I don't even care, Chris, but I'm going to tell you, right? My idea of camping is a golf course with a house right next to the golf course, looking over a beach, right? That's my idea of camping. Well, anyways, any, any amens to that? Okay. Um, so I'm just, so the point that I'm trying to make, I'm not like an outdoors guy. Um, I love nature, right? The American mind has been shaped by, and you can take this all the way, all the way back to the famous transcendentalist, like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, and uh, they really have shaped how we see nature as idyllic, and so we all go to the mountains, right, and we shoot our guns, and we do all the things that we do as Idahoans, right? <laughs> so I just saw someone give me the weirdest look. I, it's a joke, all right? Anyways, um, four years ago, my wife and I, we took our three kids. I was so happy back then. So content with life, we decided to go up to the Sawtooth National Forest. Have you ever been up there? A few of you. So we went up with two of our some of our favorite families, the Webers down here, and the Maurices down here. And we went up there because, well, I don't know if you chose us or we chose you or we kind of just chose each other. But I specifically wanted to go with people who who had been camping before, right? I, at that point, I had not camped for like 15, 16, 17 years, so I had no idea what uh, I was gonna, getting into. So we, we, we drive about two hours north of here, um, pretty close to Stanley area-esque, and so um, uh, I love, <laughs> we called him the general, Scott the general. Uh, he's a polymath, and so he just knows everything. He's building everything. Then we have Marshall, who could probably live up in the Sawtooth National Forest for 10 years by himself with nothing, and he would survive. This guy's a freak. Everyone say freak. He's a freak, right? So I felt, I felt so safe, and I felt so good. It was a sunny day. They, were, they put my tent up. Don't judge me, right? They built the fire. I got my books out, read a little Hemingway. There was an idyllic little river. Remember that river? Right outside our tents. And I was living the dream. The kids were like out, away from us. <laughs> no kids. In nature. And I'm like, man, this is, this is the best, right? And then I don't know how it happened. I, I was cutting wood. Remember, I was cutting wood like a lumberjack, and it was good. And then, have you ever, I, I don't even know how to explain this. Have you ever been like you felt happy and normal, and then you go crazy in one second? Well, that happened to me. So polymath, Scott Maurice, a.k.a. General, and I somehow got in a conversation about grizzly bears. And he goes, Chris, do you, do you know that um, grizzly bears have 10 times the sense of smell as a bloodhound? And I remember in that moment, I realized I had a grizzly. I didn't even tell him, but he probably saw the crazy in my eye. In that moment, I realized that I had a grizzly bear anxiety disorder. <laughs> I'm not joking. I didn't know where the kids were. I frantically went to my wife and asked her, where are the kids? We gotta hide the kids. We gotta hide the kids, right? And I remember it just everything, just everything turned upside down for me. I, I went to normal, happy, content, to like anxious, 
thinking about the possibility that a bear could come down in our camp and devour my body, right? Just to be really honest. What's interesting is that Scott continued, didn't recognize the fear in me. And he goes, this is what we need to do. And actually, um, we had signs and everything as we were going into our campsite. There were signs all over. You got to pack up your food. Like, I didn't, I, I, like, why do we have to pack up our food, right? So Scott begins to explain that the reason why we've got to pack up our food is... <laughs> is the bears will smell it, right? So we got to take it and put it in the car, pack it in the car, and then we'll go, I mean, does this make sense to you? And then we'll go back to our tents and sleep overnight in our tents. No, no, some of you are not listening. I mean, we pack up our food in the car and lock the door, and we sleep in our tents. I, I seriously, I'm not joking. God is my witness. I seriously thought about taking my kids and leaving my food outdoors and going into my car and locking the car doors. Like who made up that rule? Pack up your food and put it in the car and sleep in your tent. I think it was the grizzly bears. <laughs> and I've shared this story from so many different aspects. I know I'm not funny, but I'm just, I'm just trying to be real and trying to be honest with you. That whole night, I, I thought I was meat. I thought that a grizzly bear, I didn't know what I was gonna do, but I was, I was if a grizzly bear was to you know, attack us, whatever, coming to our campsite, I was thinking about every different uh, scenario. I was concerned with the kids. I'm like, oh my God, I was crazy, literally crazy. Thank God the sun came up. Isn't it funny at dark and night, you get crazy. And then the morning comes, you're like, why was I so crazy, right? So I kind of got my mind back, sort of got my mind back. I just haven't been camping since. But <laughs> why are we talking about this, Chris? How does this relate to anything uh, with Easter and where, where we are at in our current moment. Well, let me just say this quickly. Uh, this naturist, David Quamrem, uh, fascinating last name, he asked a, a similar question. He goes this, why is there a difference between being dead and being meat? The context behind the question is why is it so disturbing to think about being devoured by an apex predator? As one author, Russell Moore, points out, uh, the reason is because it reminds us of our vulnerability. Everyone say vulnerability. And as Americans, we don't like to feel vulnerable, right? We're in charge. We're Idahoans. We go up and we shoot our guns and we live off the land and come apocalypse. Zombies, please, promise, right? Idahoans were made, we're, we're cut from a different cloth, right? Except me. The rest of us, you guys are crazy, right? But, but we have this kind of sense of invincibility, and as Russell Moore points out, is that, man, this sense of being devoured by an apex, um, apex predator, it reminds us of our vulnerability in the most visceral way possible. It tells us that we're not in control or in charge in the ways in which we thought. And I realized over the last nine months, I'm a control guy. Anyone like control? I'm gonna talk about this in the next week about how worry and control work together. In fact, worry is like witchcraft. And I'll talk about that later. You try to manipulate outcomes as you worry and worry and worry about things instead of trust in God who is over all things. 
We'll talk more of that down, down the road. But um, I realized, and these are my observations about over the last uh, year and a half, 2020, 20, are we in 2024, 2021, who knows? Um, the pandemic has forced us to recognize in a very intimate way our own radical vulnerability. I remember the beginning in March and April when the pandemic hit, came on the shores of America and was breaking out in New York City. Uh, John Tyson tells a story about his wife who was severely sick. She was 10 days sick. She, she thought that she was going to die. And again, just I want you, this is so visceral. As she was um, uh, languishing in pain, uh, she started to write uh, her last thoughts to her children on her phone. She could barely move. I mean, this is America. Think about it. What? Then I remember just recently, this pastor wrote an article in the Washington Post, and he even admitted that him and his wife prayed about it, and they bought two plots uh, in a cemetery because they didn't know if they are going to get through the pandemic. Some of the greatest philosophers from Plato to Nietzsche declare that what you think about death and life beyond it is the key to thinking straight about everything else. Cultural, cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker, again, as we talk about radical vulnerability, Ernest Becker insists that the denial of death dominates our culture. Uh, you've heard me say this many times. David Foster Wallace, he was an agnostic. He almost converted to Christianity, gave a commencement speech. And in it, he used this parable. And the parable was about two fish. These two fish are swimming up uh, uh, upstream one day. They find this older fish, and the older fish looks at the two fish and asked the question, how's the water? And the two fish were like, oh, uh, yeah, it's great. Not sure what he's talking about. Then they swim up further downstream and uh, they look at each other and, they, and one fish turns to the other fish and says, what's water? And they, what's water? And they begin to realize, okay, we've been swimming in water our entire life. You see, What's our water? What's our cultural water that we've been swimming in our entire life? Well, I think Ernest Becker can make the point that it's our denial of death. It's Dar this Darwinian materialism which has shaped our, our imagination. So much so that we've made Jesus periphery even as followers of Christ. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But we have suffered from, for some time, a collective uh, cognitive dissonance uh, related to death, metaphysics, God, miracles. Uh, in the words of one author, a pastor, he goes, we know that death is something technically true, but unimaginable as a personal reality. Death for us is an abstraction. So is God, I like to add, and so are miracles. Even our relationship with God, we can abstract if we're not careful. So the pandemic over the last year, year and a half, has red-pilled us, right? Is that, is that the right, red-pilled us, matrix, no, okay. The pandemic has, in other words, forced us to see beyond our existential security. Yeah, I, I don't know if you know this, but, but we're living in, in a civilization unrivaled in human history. Board, we, we are bordered by two, the United States of America, which I love. Can I, can I get an amen? Any Americans in here? We're bordered by two great oceans. We haven't been invaded since 1812, right? Did you remember that? No? 
Our last great plague was 1918. You could maybe 1969, 1970, but 1918 was our last great plague. We have in many ways been spared the plagues that have ravaged Europe and the entire world. 2020 for Americans was um, a wake-up call to what the rest of the world for all of time in history has experienced. And we don't know how to deal with it. But we have to confront it. We have to confront the reality of death because no one in this room is going to make it out alive. Right? What is it? What's the old aphorism? Right? There are certain certainties, right? Death, taxes, and the Dallas Cowboys will lose every year. How do we confront that? Some of you are like, I want to leave this church right now. This is getting really dark. I, it's going to get better. How do, how do we confront the issues of meaning and questions about God? Well, the good news is uh, some sociologists are seeing some encouraging signs that are reformational in nature. Um, there are a growing number of, of parents that are naming their kids after biblical characters. I think, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I think what happens is that adversity opens you up to more than yourself. And people are hungry for truth. People are hungry for reality. People are hungry for something more than just like living for their own self, right? They want meaning. Like we are meaning-seeking creatures. We want purpose. Can I get an amen? But one scholar said this, any religious system which ignores the dark side of life, are fundamentally dishonest. Can I get an amen, church? As Christians, we don't pretend. Jesus said, you abide in my words, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How many of you want the truth? We are people who seek the truth. But as Christians, because of the words of Jesus, we cannot pretend. We must look at the darkness and define it honestly, and then realize that our great and only hope is found in Jesus. Amen. I think one of the reasons why we have become so complacent if you want to call the genre or the category of religion, so complacent in our relationship with God is because we have not taken death, sickness, and sin seriously enough. We have underestimated it because we thank God we have the best doctors and thank God we have the best technology and thank God we live in the United States of America. But the downside of that is we have underestimated reality. And because we've done that, we have rested or put our hope in things outside of Jesus. I read an article by George Will. He's a political columnist. Uh, some of you might have heard of him. He's an atheist. This was the most depressing article that I read so far this year. I had to pray for three hours and exercise all the demons, right? So you're like, why are you reading this to me, Chris? Because I want you to enjoy my pain or enter my pain, Okay. He goes, the plague year 2020 was yet another brutal, and I agree with this. The title of this article, and I'm just paraphrasing it, um, is human, Against Human Hubris. 
He goes, the plague year 2020, this is his article, was yet another brutal rejoiner to the belief that brute forces can be pushed the margins of and eventually out of humanity's experience. When today's pandemic recedes, what should linger is a quickened appreciation of the fragility of life and social arrangements. An awareness that things much worse than COVID-19 have happened before and will continue to happen. The human story is not entirely about human choices. And I agree with him, but in a different sense. Yes, the human story is not entirely about human choices. Yes, we live in a war-torn universe, but we have good news that's shaped around Jesus who died on a Good Friday, and I can't talk about that today, was buried, and then he bodily came back from the dead. So this is where I get a little soupy, okay? I'm gonna get back to our passage out of uh, John chapter 20, but I just, I gotta I got talk about this, this quick thought here. I, I'm realizing just with some of the things that I've gone through personally, is that instability, everyone say instability. Instability unfreezes our life and makes us more receptive to change. I'll, I'll say this better. Instability makes us more receptive to the, to the transformative voice of Jesus. In fact, and, and there's nothing wrong with stability. How many of you want more stability? Five of you. Okay, no, that's not a trick question. We all want more stability. How many of you want more boring? 2020, we anthropomorphized it. We're like, okay, 2020, what do you have for us, right? 2020 was so crazy that when the news, on the news, like the five o'clock news or whatever, the seven o'clock news, showed evidence that UFOs were flying around, we were all like, ah. What? We should have been like. But we're like, that's no big thing. That's how crazy 2020 was. So we want stability. Amen. But here's the thing. Stability tends to freeze our lives in a state of complacency. An American easygoing self-satisfaction. I can't stand it. I'm sure you can't stand it. Where we just go to church and we just pay our taxes and we try to be a good person and we think that's what following Jesus is all about. Maybe this easygoing American complacency is maybe we read our Bibles every now and then. Let me, let me say this before I, because I'm getting a little intense here. I'm not shaming anybody here today. I think we've all experienced this. But I think there's something more that God has for us than this easy, self-satisfied complacency. So please hear me. I'm not judging anyone in this room. I'm just saying, I think this is where all, this is our collective experience, right? Right. We read our Bibles maybe every now and then. Um, we, when we have seven children, we do start praying a lot. Um, but the whole time, please hear me. We keep Jesus peripheral to our lives. We give lip service that we're in a relationship with him or partnership with him. But are we? I'm speaking some truth this morning. Are we? I don't know. All I know is that this complacency uh, has no power in it. There's one author who I dis disagree with mostly. I read, I read a ton, and I read um, all spectrums of, from philosophy and theology. 
So there's one particular author I just, just fundamentally disagree with him, um, with the exception of this one point. He goes, God works through, and I want you to think of the pandemic and everything in your life right now, um, but God works through prayer and adversity to change us. I would like to add, having seven children and being a Cowboys fan, we'll do the trick as well, right? But if you could just bear with me really quick, can, can you just give me two, three minutes here and we'll get back on track here. There's an archetypal pattern found throughout scripture, which has helped me to understand God's plan, right? And I'm quote the great philosopher, Justin Bieber, even in the pandemic, God is still planning, right? No, no, no. Some of you, and some of you just judged me right there, like hard judgment. Is God planning? Yes. Come on, let me say that. Is God still planning? God, does God have a plan? God's plan, right? Drake, is that better? I, God has a plan. Let me say it. Some of you need to hear me. God has a plan. I don't know. Maybe I could say this. I need to say it stronger so you really understand. There's not one problem that God has not already solved in the cosmos. There's not one thing that has happened that has rendered God speechless. He has an answer and a solution to everything you're going through right now. Amen. But this archetypal pattern found throughout scripture, God kind of goes like this. We have the chaotic waters, then you have the wilderness, and then you have the promised land of the garden. Or the pattern can be reversed. You can have the garden, then you have the wilderness, and then you have the chaotic waters. You can think of Egypt. You can think of the children of Israel. They went through the Red Sea. The Red Sea, or the sea itself, in the ancient Near East, and in, from a biblical perspective, uh, symbolized primordial evil and chaos. It was the children of Israel that went through the Red Sea, and then God took them through the wilderness. Everyone say the wilderness. And as they go through the wilderness, they then entered the promised land. This pattern was also reversed. We find in Genesis chapter one, two, and three, you have the first humans, first image bearers that are cultivating this unfinished project called the garden. And uh, God placed them in there. They're then exiled because they chose to define the good, the right, the beautiful, the true, based on their own terms, not on God's terms. And we'll talk more about that because that's a big cultural issue that we will address here pretty, pretty soon. Pastor Ken will answer all your questions regarding that. <laughs> but they were exiled from the garden, then they went through the wilderness, find Abraham and his wanderings, and then the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, you find Joseph who dies in Egypt. Egypt is the great symbol of the chaotic waters. My point is this, there is something important to learn in the wilderness that you can't learn anywhere else. I, I want stability for all of us. And God, yes, I believe will give us stability. But there are also some things that God cannot teach until we come to a place of instability because our lives are frozen and because we cannot hear God speak to us. I want to read Deuteronomy chapter 8, 2 through 3, because we want the Bible. You just don't want my opinion, right? 
Deuteronomy chapter 8, 2 through 3 says this, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Verse 3, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. Everyone would say, did not know. Nor did your fathers know. Right? This is knowledge. They did not know. Right? They were, they were in an epistemic crisis. Like, what is that, Chris? That's just, they, it was a crisis of knowledge. They had never been this way before. They were confused, flummoxed. They were in the wilderness. Everything was like upside down. Isn't that where our nation is right now? I don't know if you know this, but a recent poll just came out that only 9% of Americans trust me, uh, media, right? Thomas Jefferson, right? He said, if we lose a free press, we lose our freedoms, right? And I think there's a good case to be said. I don't know if we can. I'm not like, trying to put this out on you, but we shouldn't take everything at face value with our media sources. In fact, our news source should primarily come from God's word. Can I get an amen to that? And hear me, I'm not hating on media. I'm just like, my God, if you're immersing yourself in the nihilism of media, I don't know if you know this, I, there's a feel when you're watching a media or a news out, you can feel spiritual warfare. And nihilism is taking over some of our greatest institutions. A lot of it, and I can't get into it, is, is connected to our, our secular moment, but the point is, there are just some things that only God can speak to us in the wilderness. In fact, we kind of see this archetypal pattern fleshed out in the life of Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, I love Luke. And in his gospel, he writes, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Do you guys have that behind me? Okay, everyone say, full of the Holy Spirit. Returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, right? So, baptism Think of chaotic waters. Jesus came out of baptism. The father looks over his son, and what does he say? This is my son, right? My well-beloved son. He's quoting Isaiah, a passage in Isaiah in Psalm chapter 2. And then the Spirit leads Jesus where? Into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, this is how I feel. Get away from me. These are my symptoms. Get away from me. This is what's happening around the world. Get away from me. No, 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 no. What did, what did he say? He said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, which we just read. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let me just say this really quick as, as kind of a, a, a further digression from my point, okay? But I have to say this. People in the church are surprised that God should speak to them. In many ways, the, the, the real problem is we've abstracted God. And that's the tendency. Our lives get frozen in times of stability if we're not careful, right? But, but the reverse should be true. We should be surprised that God would not speak to us. Your God is not a non-communicative dummy. Your God, let me remind you, and Psalm 
33 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens, the universe, the subatomic particles, the zebras, all the raw material came into existence. Let me remind you in Hebrews chapter one, it says by the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the universe is sustained. So Jesus in the wilderness, what does he say? It is not my feelings. Yes, it's not my circumstances. He says, it is written. We have to be people of scripture. We have to soak ourselves in scripture. We have to rest in scripture. I love this image. When we were young, this is just, just go with me. This is soup day, right? Okay. When we were young, we had these huge bean bags. And I just, I would take Tracy, she was younger than me, and I would throw her, because I was, you know, I just wanted to throw her in the beanbag and see what would happen, okay? But they were so big, and when her body hit the beanbag, she would sink into it, and the beanbag would just like come over her. That's a picture of how we should rest in God's word. We should just be immersed in God's word, because if we don't have God's word, I'm sorry, you cannot live by feelings alone. And feelings are important, please hear me. Feelings are important. God has given us feelings, but they are not. They are not what we are led by. They can tell us something true or somewhat true about us, but ultimately we need God's truth, right? We need God's word to guide us into his plan. It is his word that is, I'm a Pentecostal preacher right now. I'm going for it. It is God's word that is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. The word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts between the soul, the spirit, and the joint and the marrow. And is it a certain of the thoughts and the intents of the heart? God's word. And I could go on and on and on, but we don't have time. So Jesus defeats the Satan who lies. He's the father of lies. And if we listen to lies, I'm learning about this because this last year has been, I'm gonna be really honest, a struggle for me for so many lies as I've struggled with a lot of physical things. And I've realized the more I listen to lies, the more I empower those lies. He is a liar and you have to live by it is written. We don't have what it takes inside ourselves. This is why I reject the authenticity movement. The authenticity movement is a secular movement that simply believes that if you're true to yourself, because the bottom of who you are is unalloyed goodness, then you will find yourself. And I've just come to the conclusion that is absolutely false because I know what's deep down inside of me. It's not unalloyed goodness, it's badness. Outside of Jesus, I'm not a good man. Come on, somebody. And so I've learned that in order to be authentic, I need to be inauthentic. I can't be authentic to my true self. I need to be true to what God has said over my life, my family, this church, this city, this nation, and the nations of the world. I haven't worked out in a while. I'm losing breath. So if I pass out, just wake me up and give me the mic and I'll get back to preaching. 
Verse 14, and it says, remember, Luke says that he was full of the Holy Spirit. He goes into the wilderness. Remember, my basic thesis is there are some things that God can only teach you in the wilderness. Verse 14, notice what happens. This is just fascinating. And Jesus returned in what? Not the fullness of the Spirit, but the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. In other words, God's empowering presence follows our time in the wilderness. And if we're not careful, we can short-circuit the wilderness process. We can do it. I mean, there's, there's a myriad of ways we can do it. We can give up. We can stop trusting. We can give up um, on hope. And I just feel like I need to say this today. Some of you, you are thinking about giving up right now, and I'm giving you the word of the Lord. Don't give up. Some of you are struggling with trust. There is no shame in that. I get that. I understand that. You don't know if you can trust God anymore, but I want to tell you that your God is going to come through. Don't give up. Keep on trusting. Keep on hoping. I think one of the reasons why so many Christians live off, and so many churches live off of borrowed authority and power is because we have short-circuited the wilderness process. We've given up and we've settled with low expectations. We come to church with low expectations. We have low expectations in our marriages. We have low expectations for what God can do in this world. We have low expectation for our kids. We have low expectation. We just low, 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 low expectations. And homie, don't play that. Jesus doesn't play that. In fact, what you find in the wilderness, and I love this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, and my thoughts are changing a little bit about this on a hermeneutic level, but I won't get into that. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hunger, not complacency, is what you learn in the, in the wilderness. And hunger, not complacency, is what ne is necessary for God putting the world to rights. That word uh, righteousness is virtually synonymous with justice and shalom in scripture. I can't break this down. Essentially, those three words working together form a hendiatus. Don't worry about that. Essentially, that means this. Righteousness, justice, and shalom means God, a well-ordered world between God, yourself, others, and creation. That's what God wants for this world. He wants to heal this broken world. Do you believe that? He wants to heal broken bodies. He wants to heal broken brains. He wants to heal broken marriages. He wants to heal broken systems. Come on, somebody. But we got to be hungry. Got to be hungry. God is looking for people who have a big appetite for him. You remember when you were 20 and your metabolism was just like that, guys? And you go to Pizza Hut and you would just eat three. I, I, I out ate everybody. I was skinny. I was like 140. And I, I won every eating contest with my friends. I'd eat pizza after pizza after pizza. That's what I, that's what I want to be with God. I'm tired of all the other. All the other stuff is trivial. I don't care if I ever write a book. I don't, I don't, I'm not a social media influencer. I don't care about any of that stuff. My one goal in life, and if you're that, that's fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. My, will in, my one goal in life is to be hungry for God. 
Matthew 6.33 essentially says the same thing. And we learned this in the desert. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. I love this. C.S. Lewis said this. You put first things first, you'll get second things, third things, fourth things thrown in. But you put second things, first things, you will lose both first and second things. Seek first. Get hungry. Get hungry. Let the pandemic force you to confront what's inside of you. Let the wilderness experience expose things in you so you can get more hungry for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen. So how does this relate to John chapter 20? I don't know. We'll see. But I think for me personally, 2020, 2021 has made me see Easter with fresh eyes. One of the problems in the church and one of the problems on a street level, when they think about Easter, right? We're talking people who don't even come to church. One of the problems when it comes to Easter is this like great mismatch of expectations, so many Christians are confused. Okay, what do we do with death? What do we, how does Easter even affect my life? In fact, uh, my favorite scholar just recently wrote an article in Time Magazine, and he said this, for most, Easter and the pandemic seem like a giant mismatch. The world needs hope at ground level. How many of you believe that? Hope with boots on. Most see Easter as an escapist, however, fantasy, holding out the mirage-like hope of heaven hereafter. In fact, Stephen Colbert, if you like him, that's great. But he just, in a recent show, was talking about Easter. I think he's a Catholic. I think he was like, and he did catechism, all that kind of stuff. Him and his wife were bantering back and forth, and they were talking about um, the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is risen. And I think he commented, oh, that means we get all that eternity stuff. That's not what Easter is about. Easter is about what God is doing in this world. John 20, really quick, the great anticlimactic moment, the disciples go home. But John has been telling us a story from the very beginning, the very beginning of his prologue. He says, in the word was the logos, right? And so he's telling us a story and he's designed his entire gospel around seven signs or seven acts of creation. We come to the sixth day in John chapter 19. I'm losing my voice because I haven't preached in six months, guys, okay? But we find in John chapter 19 is Jesus who on the cross says, it is finished. We know in, in the first creation in Genesis chapter 1 that uh, God made the first human. It is Jesus on the sixth day who says, it is finished. He is the real second human, John is telling us. On the seventh day, we find in the original creation, God rested. On the seventh day, we find in John's gospel, Jesus rested in the tomb. And then we come on Sunday. Everyone say Sunday. Sunday, we have the first day of the week, or the eighth day, or better said, the, the first day of God's brand new world. And it's not, many people when we read first day of the week and God has a brand new world, and he's launching new creation, we spiritualize that. We think it's like something for, we abstract it. We think it's like for like, like another lifetime, 10 10 million years from now for us. That's not what it means. What it means is that heaven and earth have joined up. And what that means, and some of you need to understand what heaven is. Heaven is not a disembodied place. Heaven has its own space, its own matter, its own time, its own substance. And this is what I tell my kids all the time because they get it confused. I don't know why they get it confused. They must be listening to my wife. Anyways, 
kidding. I, she missed it. She missed, she's a better teacher than me. But I had to tell them, heaven is not a disembodied place. It is more real, more solid, but in a different way. It's, the, it's a different side of earth, right? It's God's space where he rules from every, everywhere. We'll do a series on heaven here um, pretty soon. The point is, when John says, he's making an announcement, the eighth day, the first day of the week, what he's saying is that new creation, real, new, generative power has been launched in a dramatic way through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. From Good Friday to Easter, God has planted in the soil of human sorrow and pain, a new heaven and earth reality. It's a real victory in real history. It's, it's a real thing in real time and space. Hope has arrived. And the disciples go home. And they eat their cheese puffs. And they watch Netflix, right? Many of us do that with Easter. You get your preacher and he loses his voice and he's la excited about Easter. And we're la back to the preacher, we're excited. And then we go home. And there's nothing wrong with watching TV. What I'm talking about is if we truly understand what the meaning of Jesus is risen in the first day of the week and that new creation, a real thing in real space and time has dramatically arrived, you can never go back. First Easter addresses in all of us that fear of death. In fact, Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, I don't know if we have that passage. Do we have that passage, guys? It tells us through, yes, since therefore the children share the flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus bodily came back from the dead. And what that means is not the redescription of death, not the redefining of death. It means the total, complete annihilation of death itself. I wish I could do a full thing on exposition on 1 Corinthians 15. I just can't do that today. I know you guys are dying for that. I can see it in your faces as you're like, write this. Children are okay. I got seven of them. They'll, they'll live, okay? Anyways, our secular world has no answer to death. They can't give you an answer for meaning, purpose. They got nothing. And this is why nihilism is running rampant, right? This is why people are freaking out. Nature folk religions mixed with a little bit of Buddhism, maybe a low grade stoicism and pantheism, they're all kind of merged together. Their belief about life and death um, is basically you just gotta accept death, right? On friendly terms, right? That's a redescription of death. At death, we're absorbed in some universal greater consciousness. We become the water or the rain or whatever. To me, that's very depressing. There's some low-grade versions of this in the church. We call it Gnostic, medieval, Platonic stuff. Don't even worry about that, technical terms. Essentially, a lot of people think that when we talk about Jesus is risen from the dead, that means that we simply go off to heaven, and that's not what the bodily resurrection of Jesus in Easter means. Easter resurrection, as I end here, treats death not as a friend, but a defeated enemy. Central to New Testament is that the death 
of Jesus. But the belief is that death will simply be redefined or will not simply be redefined or redescribed, but on absolute terms, defeated, reversed, turned back on itself. In fact, I want you to hear this. The New Testament declared that Jesus of Nazareth was risen, which means, in the words of one scholar, that Jesus was dead and buried, really was raised to life on the third day with a renewed body, not a resuscitated corpse, can I get an amen, or something like Homer's race or ghosts, right? He's been given a new kind of physical body, which left an empty tomb behind it because it had used the material of Jesus' original body up and which now possesses new properties that nobody had ever expected before. What that means is death has been defeated which if you trace the etymology of that, that means sin has been forgiven because death is a result of sin. So you got a double whammy, people. Like sin, shame, pain, sickness, sorrow, being crushed, despair, nihilism has all been reversed and defeated through the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, when you read all the post-Easter stories, you find a transformed Jesus. He's more physical, more solid, more graspable than ever before. He eats fish and chips for breakfast. All the breakfast people said amen. The disciples see and they touch the scars on his hands. Jesus teaches them about the kingdom and the spirit for 40 days. This is a monstrosity in our Western post-enlightened secular world. I'm almost done. If this is true about Jesus, that he bodily came back from the dead, It challenges everything that we think we know about this world. From epistemology, that's knowledge, to ethics, that's how we behave, to our daily lives. If you say, as I mentioned before, if you say Jesus is risen, you can't go back. If you understand what it means. The gospels never say anything like Jesus is risen, now we can go to a postmodern world, thoroughly disembodied, where we shine like... Is Rihanna still a thing? I don't know, but that's what, you're my family. The gospels never say Jesus is raised, so there is in fact life after death. And we believe that there's life after death. We'll talk about that later. The gospels never say that Jesus is raised and one day you'll you'll sit on a disembodied cloud shining like a disembodied, non-corporeal glow stick for 10,000 years. My God, that's depressing. And what those pictures tell you is this, if that's what resurrection is about, just going to some disembodied place, that means death has not been defeated. Just so you know, God wants to renew this world. This world. And we'll teach on this later uh, in the year. But what the New Testament declares is that Jesus is risen as we close and that we have a job to do in the words of one scholar. Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority in heaven has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, I'm gonna give you like a, 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 um, I don't know, like a space machine and we're gonna fly off planet earth. No, he didn't say that. 
said, all authority has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. Luke 24, a new world has been birthed. Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, I want you to wait for the spirit to be clothed with power, the power of God that transforms the world. And you see God transforming the entire ancient world in the book of Acts. In John 20, we find that Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, as the father has sent me, so I send you. The New Testament declares that Jesus is risen the God's new world, right in the middle of our contaminated, polluted, sorrow-filled world has been launched. Declares that Jesus rose from the dead and that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is in charge. I want to talk more about this, but I can't. He is in charge of human history. Not a tyrant, not a principality or power, not this present darkness. Come on, somebody. Uh, Not your boss not cancer, not some sickness, not some situation that you're in. Jesus is the Lord. And every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The early Christians said when Jesus is risen, that there's forgiveness and healing and new generative power at work. So as we close here, Christianity is not about a new religious option, a pluralistic world. It's not another rule of life. It's not another philosophy on life or religion. It's rather this earth-shattering reality that God has started this, this renewal project on planet Earth, and you and I can be a part of it. God wants to renew everything from bodies and relationships and marriages and brains and science and politics and education. Come on, somebody. And what we do with food, everything matters. You see, the world can cope with a disembodied Jesus who lives in heaven. You know why they can cope with that? Because they can do whatever they want. The powers want us to think that Jesus is way out in some faraway place, not worried about what's going on down here. That's that's not the truth. The world can cope with that kind of Jesus, that domesticated version of Jesus. However, the world cannot cope with the Jesus who comes out of the tomb, who turns death back on itself, who is thoroughly solid and in charge of creation. Are you still with me? I know I've gone long, so, so stinking long, but I'm almost done. Oscar Wilde's play, it's called Salome. You know him, playwright, brilliant, atheist, but he gets something right about the resurrection. This is what he writes. When Herod hears reports that Jesus of Nazareth has been raising the dead, he said this, I do not wish him to do that, said Herod. I forbid him to do that. I allow no man to raise the dead. This man must be found and told that I forbid him to raise the dead. Why do you think he would say that? Because he understands that resurrection means that someone else is in charge. So today, let's not just go home and do nothing. If Easter didn't happen, then our world would be a different place if it did happen. We must, we must understand Easter is radically self-involving, which means that Jesus greets us, he welcomes us, he commands us not to be afraid, he forgives us, he speaks peace over us, and then he invites us into this great project of changing the world. And this is what I want to pray over all of us. I want a big appetite and hunger for all of that. 
I want to get hungry for God's kingdom. As I, as I close, this is found in 2 Corinthians. I know we have to go, but can you just give me two minutes? Have I bored you to death? Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 8 through 10 says this, for we do not, Paul, this is God's chosen. This is his fourth letter to the church in Corinth. His first letter, he was buoyant. As a rhetorician, he soared. 1 Corinthians 13 is the what? The love chapter, right? He's just, sometimes he's a little bit dense, but man, his rhetorical ability is on another buoyant level. He's filled with eschatological hope. We now come to his fourth letter in 2 Corinthians. He's tired and exhausted and broken. And this is what he says. He writes like a tired man. He's still filled with faith, but he says this. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burned beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. And then he says again, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. What is Paul doing? He's tying Easter to this world. Easter is this world. I have a, like I've never experienced before, I have such a hunger for God to move in ways we have never seen before. On Good Friday, I told Shane, I said, the church better, I felt God's power in such a real way. I told Shane, the church better look out the next decade. We're going to see extraordinary things happen. People healed. The impossible made possible. Mountains brought down. Brains healed. Anxiety defeated. Sins forgiven. Sickness removed. Come on, somebody. The power of God is here. You can stay standing. I want to pray. Stay standing. I'm going to read one last passage. Second Corinthians 4, 7 through 12 says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying the body, the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. There's a lot that I can't unpack here today. The point that I wanna make is, Paul is writing that from the benefits of hindsight. He really did think he was crushed. He said it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He really thought he had been given the sentence of death. He really thought he was overwhelmed. He really thought he was forsaken. He really thought that he was abandoned. He really had given himself to despair. But Paul tells us, Paul tells us that God allowed that to teach him not to rely on himself, but on God who raises the dead. And this morning, this afternoon now, I want to pray for those who really feel crushed. You feel overwhelmed. Your mind is filled with anxiety. Your body is broken. Your marriage is broken. Maybe you've lost something or someone and you do not know how to confront the darkness. 
we have hope today. That hope is not in a redheaded preacher. The hope is not in a really good church filled with really imperfect people. The hope is in Jesus. This is why we're not called churchianity, we're called Christianity. Because we believe Christ is the savior of the world. And I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. The power of Jesus is here right now. The power to heal. The power to break addictions. The power to bring hope. The power to bring life. New creation is here. And as your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed, you say, Chris, I feel crushed. My mind is broken. My body is broken. I have no hope. My marriage, I don't know, it's gonna happen. But I just, I'm, my heart is filled with despair. If that's you, we're almost done here. I'd like to pray for you. If you could just raise your hand, you say, Chris, I need you to pray for me right now. Could you just do that right now? All over the place, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, if you raise your hand, put it down, put it on your heart, I'm gonna pray for you. Father, I thank you that Jesus, you came back from the dead. And I thank you right now, there is life being released into every son and daughter. I thank you people that have never experienced hope are experiencing hope right now. There are some people right now, you have been dealing with anxiety for a long time. I just see Jesus healing your mind from the effects of anxiety. Lord, I pray for those who are sick in body, bring complete healing in their body from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet. I don't know why I'm thinking this, but some of you, you don't have any hope for your marriage. Lord, I pray right now by the power of the Holy Spirit, whatever is going on, you would come and bring healing and reconciliation to a marriage or maybe several marriages in this place today in Jesus' name. We declare you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.